Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, decoding the politics of technology from around the world. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we dive deep into efforts to track flows of misinformation with Dan Angus from QUT's Digital Media Research Centre. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Josh Taylor from Guardian Australia. It feels though this week there's only really one issue and we'll probably just be attacking that from a bunch of different angles and that's um, the tragic invasion of Ukraine that's being played out over the last week. Um, I'm conscious that war is such an exploitative medium that it's not about jumping on the back of war to talk about our tech hobby horses. It's actually about looking at what's a hugely dangerous, disruptive event to try to understand the world that we're creating. And um, it's great to have Josh in the room who's been writing um, for Guardian Global about um, some of those different storylines that are playing out and different ways the technology is being used. But I think in the first half hour, it's going to be great to sort of look at both what's happening internationally, what's happening with the platforms, what's happening in Australian politics and broader thinking about what this means for the long-term, I guess, structure of the global World Wide Web, as we used to call it. Um, And then in the second half, we're going to dive deep with Dan, who's part of an amazing team at QUT, who I don't know the best way to describe your work, but it feels to me like you're almost forensic digital DNA testers so that you go deep into the way information flows to to work out who done it it's not always <laughs> sometimes there's, there's not there's a none done it but it's it's really interesting work Dan so we're looking forward to that there's a paper that we've been working on with you over the last few weeks that um we'll be talking about a bit later we'll try to convince Josh that there is actually a yarn in there although his news desk did come back saying well you're saying nothing's happening so it's not a story which is the way the way news works, but we can we can get there um, in the second half. But Dan, you're really welcome to join us in this first half of um, the session as well. So let's kick off, Josh, with what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, your your missive through the Guardian was really interesting. That it was looking at both the way that information and access to information was being used effectively as another theatre of war. Um, and I'm interested if you want to sort of just take us through some of your impressions and then we can sort of kick around. Yeah, so I, I think there's this whole sort of notion with, with the internet that it's, you know, not the real world. But I think that that is fastly being sort of, you know, dissipating. People don't sort of really believe it anymore because, um, you know, if there's a war now on, it, there will also be a war online, you know, it, particularly with Russia having such a, you know, large cyber capability winner they're a lot behind a lot of um cyber attacks already so it was it was obvious that it was going to um have a huge online component at least and so i've been sort of taking a little bit of a helicopter view uh in the past week just sort of seeing all the different um i'm reluctant to call them like war fronts but that's kind of what it is online um so uh i think there was some research uh checkpoint put out some research this week that that suggested that um, in the first days of combat, cyber attacks on the Ukraine uh, government and military websites went up about 196% compared to the rest of February. Um, But the interesting part, I think, has been the 
similar to what we're seeing on the ground in the Ukraine is that this um, this fight back, not just from the, the government itself, but from ordinary citizens. You've got anonymous jumping in doing cyber attacks. Uh, uh, people taking down Russian media websites. Uh, they, the uh, Ukrainian government's actually organizing, um, you know, cyber activity on uh, Telegram, which is maybe a little bit questionable given um, who is behind uh, Telegram. Uh, but the, you know, they've got a Telegram channel that's got 175,000 people. They're, they're doing stuff like DDoS attacks on Russian websites. Um, there was also the the interesting thing where um, uh, a ransomware group, Conti, had their internal communications leaked by a pro-Ukrainian member of that group because they were angry that Conti had sided with Russia. Um, so I thought that that was probably the interesting sort of cyber things. There's still, I think, there's still quite a bit going on there. Um, we'll probably we'll probably discuss um, what the social media companies and the tech companies are doing um, in a little bit of time. But I thought it was interesting that. Um, both Facebook and Twitter came out this week basically saying that they'd removed a couple of pro-Russian influence operations that, um, you know, had, had not been all that successful, but um, it sort of made them seem like they were doing things um, and, and responding to it. Uh, we, we can we can discuss that a little bit later. I think the crypto aspect to all of this is quite interesting as well. So the Ukrainian government has been asking for um, people to make donations to fund the war effort, something like, I think $18 million flooded into the country in the first few days. And there was an interesting story today about they were planning on um, doing an airdrop NFT type thing, which was basically like they would give you a token if you're donating to the arms effort or whatever. And a lot of, a lot of money flooded into that as, as tend to happen with this, with these um, uh, NFT crypto type things. And then the government announced today that they're, effectively what what is known in the crypto community is like rug pulling where they're not going to do this airdrop anymore where they're giving people something for for donating but they're going to instead launch their own sort of nft type things where people can get some sort of nft for, for donating money to the the war effort so there's a fair bit going on there. uh on there's the a other lot of moving parts yeah there's there's kind of the the, the structure of how the different um warring parties are having access to the tools mm. of technology then there's using wild and wonderful new technology, including, I might add, um, Elon Musk being drawn into the um, the conflict over Twitter by the Ukrainian government to support um, Ukrainians bypassing the blockages that the Russians had put up by accessing his space satellite, which just, <laughs> there are so many layers. That's not a science fiction movie, that's happening. Yeah, I was surprised that happened so quickly. Well, I mean, I mean, it is Elon Musk, so he does often insert himself into these um into these global situations although in this case uh i think it was the um ukrainian vice president fedorov who uh put the call out and asked for it and he but he got it there quite quickly and and um was able to have internet access delivered by the starlink satellites um into into ukraine uh quite quickly and uh, it's, it's interesting to see there was some speculation i saw online that this is potentially an issue though because um uh, satellite c- communication tools can be tracked and used to track people so it might not be all that great in the long term but um, yeah it's interesting to see sort of how everyone how the world is responding in different ways and particularly online. Mm. Lizzie there's so much to to sort of bounce off here what's been your um, your perception from a distance? Yeah well I, there's a there is a lot to unpack and sort of want to do it in an orderly fashion but I, I guess starting with where you started, Josh, looking at the different capacities that exist in tech spaces and 
in the tech industry. I think Microsoft is an interesting example, particularly with countering cyber attacks. I mean, it's true that Russia is um, is known for engaging in various cyber attacks. You know, they did, well, there's responsibility attributed to them for the SolarWinds attack, which saw them get access to network management systems in the United States government, um, be able to infiltrate that. So tech is a big part of uh, at least not officially, um, their engagement in the international sphere and a source of power for them. But I do wonder whether there's an argument to be made looking at how Microsoft um, was chipping into the war effort is, I suppose, how you describe it, or, or perhaps more cynically, certainly being commandeered by the US in the war effort to resist cyber attacks um, directed at the Ukraine, whether we're seeing a situation where um, the nation state that wields the greatest technological power will ultimately uh, potentially be more successful or have a competitive advantage against their enemies in a warfare context, given how central some of these communication systems are, not just for civilian life, but obviously also for military initiatives. Um, What's your take, Josh, on how Microsoft was engaged in that? Because, I mean, there's a lot of cheerleading now for the Ukrainians, which I completely understand. I mean, they're um, being invaded by Russia. But you do wonder whether this may be deployed in other instances, in other warfare situations where um, Microsoft is put to the to task by the US government or does it itself of its own bat and whether this is now the kind of assets that give rise to military victory, um, having these tech companies who manage this kind of infrastructure and can counter these cyber attacks. What's your take on Microsoft, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I think it is something that I know we, we kind of this, I guess this tech notion that's kind of been in existence forever for everywhere that um, it is kind of their argument about being a platform as well in a lot of ways they're neutral they're not they they don't participate in anything they they don't have a stand on anything like that but we're kind of more and more expecting them to do this kind of thing and i think that um it's one of those things where you don't want to establish the precedent which is what is happening here and it can be used in a, in a bad way in the future um but it's one that, yeah, it's, it's really it's so complicated it's just one of those things where it's like um I can understand why everyone can see this as a good thing, but in the long run, it may not actually be. It's a similar sort of thing with, um, in terms of what um, Google and Apple are doing and, and a lot of the other companies. I remember there was, um, it's similar to a bit what, um, when I think there was a a story a few years ago about um, basically getting Cloudflare and things to, to, stop providing services to sites that were hosting sort of like the Christchurch terrorist thing. And everyone thought that was quite a good thing to do. And like, no one wants those sites on the internet and things like that. But um, Cloudflare were quite reluctant to initially, because they're like, if we establish this precedent where we're doing this, what are we going to actually be doing in the future? Is it going to be used on something that we don't want to use? So that's, that's, um, yeah, that, that's one of the, the interesting things. Yeah, that, that actually, that sort of feeds into the, the discussion around um, the cryptocurrency exchanges as well, because they've been quite, uh, reluctant to ban Russian addresses from being able to receive and or exchange cryptocurrency on their services because they're saying that goes against the fundamental ideas of sort of like this decentralized currency and everything like that. If if we if we're banning Russian addresses, then you know what's next? What are we going to be doing next? So I don't particularly agree with them in that instance, but it's one of those things where it's like, well, mm. how do you actually make the judgment call on that uh, if you're being asked to do one thing and then you know what what's the next stage of that? It's really interesting if you if you look back to nine eleven and the, the the terrorism wars, the the entire um, technological response at that point kind of led to the business model that is now 
running um, at least Western technology and then, you know, starting to think through. So the starting point of um, this incursion, what's going to flow forward. Um, luckily, we've got a bunch of academics trying to think that through, but it's going to be, you know, a, an experiment in real life. Um, what the extent other, are the companies no, already, can I ask yeah, them, yeah. to what extent do we think companies are potentially already doing this anyway? And this is really just allowing it to come to the fore. Like, so they're I mean, deploying <laughs> existing capability rather than building new models. Exactly. I mean, we've talked about on previous episodes yeah, of this yeah. show how um, regulating tech for good or civic tech, some civic tech organisations who talk about regulation deliberately pitch American technology as against Russian and Chinese mm. technology as a source of soft power for the US government. And I'm not trying to be cynical because I do think tech companies could do more. And there's, then the question is what? And there's different layers of that they can be involved in doing more, so to speak. But I do think there is a question around whether what we're just seeing is perhaps the manifestation in public of things that they already do behind the scenes and is part of a strategy for the US as much as it is for Russia. Um, and sometimes I do feel that we often see China and Russia as being companies that use state-sponsored hacking and the like for nefarious purposes, and that does occasionally limit our capacity to see how um you know, Western governments do the same thing. And this can come to the fore in terms of precedent, as you argued, Josh, but also perhaps revealing how these dynamics are at play in non-warfare periods. And that's important to keep in mind, I think. At least in the academic community, there are tensions at the moment, even around the involvement of tech companies within academia. So you look at a lot of academic conferences where tech companies are kind of there, they're very present, um, they're sending their own um, engineers and, and scientists along, submitting papers and such. But there's a tension there because the, the research community operates in a very open way, right? Our, all of our research is, is generally published in, in very public ways. And they're very selective about the kinds of research they allow out into public for scrutiny. Mm. You think about what's happened with Google and Timnit Gebru, um, who, who left the, the ethics um, kind of division of Google in, in quite an extreme circumstance, right? She was fired, essentially, um, for her outspoken views around some of the work that Google was doing. I think you're absolutely right, Lizzie, that there's, there's soft power here at play, even outside of a, of a situation of war, where these tech companies are very canny around their public perception, the ways that they can kind of keep tabs even then on the, the research that's occurring within the scientific community and steer that in particular ways. And look, I've seen it get pretty ugly at conferences even with like tensions between academics who... Oh, Hi, Josh's cat. Um, <laughs> tensions between the the kind of academics like us who are very much, you know, we're at universities and such and we're not affiliated with these companies and those who might have a co-affiliation between, say, a Facebook and a, and a university, um, it can get pretty heated because they just don't see themselves as conflicted. But mm. of course they are, right? They, they're answerable to those companies in some way. Um, the other area that I wanted to take this conversation was probably the level of the the actual information war and the way that the propaganda is being played out as almost a reflection of different models of tech. Um, we've seen Putin using effectively state-controlled search and state-controlled social media to really seed and propagate a narrative of the Nazification or the denazification of Ukraine. On the other side, we've got the TikTok president, former comedian, great at doing social media on the ground, who's really... Um, using that immediacy and being in the heat of battle to to build and solidify um, support across the West. Um, and then we've got probably the, 
another layer as well, which is the, the calls to ban Russia Today and Foxtel and SBS have sort of taken Russia Today off. I saw my good friend Marcus Strom, the former um, federal president of MIA, just saying, is that actually the way that you, like, is blocking their propaganda the way that we think throughout response to the issue is understanding what Russians are hearing, part of what we should as engaged citizens be aware of. Um, there was a push from Morrison to call on local platforms to block out all the Russia Day. It looks like now Russia Day is going to fall over because of the Western sanctions anyway. So it might be, um, you know, it, it might be a hypothetical call anyway. But what are we learning from all this? It seems that both sides are using their models of social media as tools and we'd be naive to think that, you know, this is all neutral. War is about the propaganda war as well and is it in our national interest to only get the propaganda from one side or does that just close down the debates? Um, I know you're a rights-based person, Lizzie. I'm interested in what you think from those ruminations. I find this very interesting. So Senator Warner in the United States has written to all the major tech companies saying you shouldn't be allowing disinformation, which we're going to talk about in a bit. But there's a lot of discussion around not permitting monetization of this kind of content from state-sponsored um, news channels to continue, whether it's on YouTube or um, Facebook and the like. I mean, I, I think the claim around monetization is perhaps a little spurious in that it's it's designed to avoid this state propaganda reaching a wide audience rather than allowing a company to profit from it. But what I find, you know, that may be a legitimate call in, in some ways, but I, I do think there's a I think there's a very decent counter argument that, you know, that we don't want to have news content constantly being taken down by social media platforms. And in fact, we argued this very thing in Australia 12 months ago. Um, but I think some of this stuff becomes very much a slippery slope and we've seen this on display. I think it's really telling that now that Netflix has cancelled all projects in Russia, they're not progressing any of them. So there's not even just a call on distribution of news, but also distribution of cultural content that this idea that we should boycott Russia because they've invaded Ukraine now applies to tech as a uh, an industry where there's a concentration and centralisation of distribution of material online. Now that call is not just about state-sponsored propaganda but also about cultural content. And to my mind, this seems pretty serious. I saw the other day as well that some, you know, some academic platform was stopping translating their articles into Russian as part of a boycott. The meerkat from that stupid television campaign has been cancelled because he's what it got a Russian accent. Like, I think this is astonishing, really. Um, and tech companies... Uh, I think there's this perception that they've had too long, so much power wielded by being these choke points for content, that this is the time at which they need to step up and do the right thing. But there is a very uh, broad argument that comes out of that, which starts to become pretty illogical pretty quickly, um, not least because I'm not convinced actually that that there's always this huge swathes of the vast majority of Russians necessarily agree with Putin, but of course they're all being put in the same bucket mm. and being treated the same. Um, I'll just throw one more yeah. in, Lizzie. Um, there's this Australian YouTuber, Aussie Cossack, who um, Four Corners did a piece on a year or two ago, who's quite active around this. There was also the guy on Q&A last night that was told to leave the room. Mm. Is that the approach? I know this isn't so much a tech, but more a sort of information, information hygiene, but it does feel that um, we're falling into various traps, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. History is written by the victors. And 
you know, it's not that long ago that an SBS journalist essentially lost his job for a bunch of tweets about what happened, what the Australians did during the Second World War to uh, Japanese women. Like, you know, uh, he was talking about well-documented allegations of war crimes against Australian soldiers and lost his job because of it. I think these things are connected. I think that that we do see this being the first draft of history in terms of generating propaganda. So we do need to think about not just how those terrible enemies do this, but how we do it mm. ourselves so that we can have a proper accounting for it. I mean, mm. yeah, they're, they're, hey, I'm pretty committed to being anti-war. So, Hey, Josh, how, how, how do you see the Guardian of the broader um, media in Australia playing this at the moment? Um, I mean, we've, we're sort of leaning very heavily on our international um, reporters and the people who are actually on the ground in the Ukraine and, and things like that. In terms of the sort of local perspective, I don't know, we, I don't think we've done any um, particular sort of um, pro-Russian coverage or anything like that. We, we haven't sort of sought that out, but I haven't, to be honest, I haven't like read everything that we've written about it. Then there's been quite a lot written over the past couple of weeks. Um, I think it's kind of interesting though for just um, to, to sort of get back onto the social media side mm. of things is that um, I think during the, the pandemic there, there became, uh, well, from, from basically 2016 up until the pandemic and, and continued on there's there's become this greater expectation on um, platforms and tech companies and things like that to take a responsibility for misinformation and disinformation on their platform. And there were, you know, people, you know, slippery slope is the cliche and everything like that. And, and a lot of the anti-vaxxers and, and um, people who have been banned from platforms like Craig Kelly and people like that warn that, you know, um, if they, if, you know, if, if this is how it's all going to go, then, you know, people will be taken off for other things. And I think this, what we're seeing in terms of banning some of these channels is sort of this, a similar sort of next down the line response. They're wanting people to actually just, um ban these stuff outright without even thinking too much about it. I think there has been a lot of misinformation being floating around online in regards to Russia and Ukraine. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we've sort of settled on what we're willing to to accept as, as part of the discourse and, and what is just out of bounds, essentially, at the moment. I don't think we've sort of come to a complete view on it yet. It's still too early days, I think. If only we had um, someone that researched um, information flows in the room. Oh, Dan. <laughs> What, what, what sort of questions are you asking yourself as this plays out? And it's a good way to sort of bring in some of the work you do into the discussion now. Yeah, what's really interesting here for us is the, the kind of domestic versus that international um, disinformation aspect as well. And looking at, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Lizzie's point here around, I think it's a very blunt instrument to try and just ban like RT off, off the platform to, altogether and then not critically examine the role of other domestic media that is that is also, you know, in the room spreading, you know, false narratives. And, and, you know, you just look at any issue we've had to contend with, climate change, this, that, and the other. Um, we've had long-running domestic disinformation campaigns here in Australia that we've done very little about. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's a complex problem. But we're mostly interested in looking at um, particularly coordinated and authentic activities on platforms like Twitter or Facebook and others. And these are the kind of long-running campaigns with... Um, very much where you have the involvement of actors, uh, accounts that try to pass themselves off as genuine kind of citizenry and, and users of those platforms. And that's a particularly insidious form of, of misinformation. So I guess, you know, when you're looking at RT, you kind of know what you're getting. When you're looking at Fox News, you kind of know what you're getting. Um, it's very easy to kind of spot and, 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 and kind of you know, wrap around a, a particular lens and say, look, when you're looking at that, just, you know, 
take it with a grain of salt, right? Be cautious with that as a product. And then you can also track how it flows, right? So it's actually very easy for us to track and trace the flows of that um, information. In fact, one of our researchers, um, you know, it looks at RT specifically and tracks it around the web. But what's really difficult and much more problematic are those kinds of astroturfing campaigns where you've got people who are trying to pass themselves off as authentic engaged citizenry who are then kind of seeding messages within that that messy online public sphere. Um, and that's the stuff that I and the researchers in DMRC get really concerned about because they're the ones that can have that kind of psychological effect of like, oh, look at all these other people who kind of think like me and I'm, I'm part of this group. Or in actual fact, they're being duped by some kind of Russian troll farm or whatever who's got all these accounts and they're sending them out there. So I think, yeah, my short version is you're looking in the wrong area if you're only looking at the large, very well-known disinformation actors and ignoring the greater kind of iceberg under there of these kinds of astroturfing campaigns. So do you want to tell us a bit about how you go looking for icebergs and understanding icebergs? Because um, it's, it's as much um, a data job as, you know, a, an information job, isn't it? I call it, I call it almost art sometimes as well <laughs> in, in what we do. Um, so, look, I mean, this is with researchers who should have been here, Tim Graham, who couldn't be because his, um, his, his four little boys got COVID. Um, but, um, you know, Tim and myself and Axel Bruns um, and others, what we do is... We, we kind of start at entry points. So where we might have intelligence around a, a number of accounts that have been engaging in some kind of suspicious activity, or it could even be a, a series of websites. We know are kind of suspicious websites that you know are known kind of distributors of problematic information. And from there, there's a series of tools we've built. So Twitter provide a, an, an API, um, which is a way in which we can gain access into the huge volume of Twitter data that is there and, and circulating online. Um, Facebook provide access to a tool that is being degraded. We can go there in a sec, if you like, called CrowdTangle. So this provides some access into some Facebook data, but not all of it. So we get public posts and, and public, um, so public posts on pages and groups, but we don't get private information and we don't get the comments. So, you know, it gives us some in information to go on. But um, we kind of start by looking at, yeah, the sharing of those links and then also the interactions between those communities. And that's a real tell sometimes. So Tim's done a lot of work and, and is continuing this work in looking at where you get artificial boosting of content. So say you've got one account that posts a link or a comment to, you know, say it's pro-Putin. And then you get a series of other accounts that very, very quickly retweet and amplify that activity. And say you see that again and again and again. So that same pattern of boosting, and then you actually start to see patterns where the same accounts are kind of boosting each other a little bit as well. These create these networks. And that those are the networks that we're really interested in looking at because then once you spread out from them, you can get a, a sense of, well, who are the accounts that are involved? What is the information that they're looking to share and spread? And then how are they impacting the rest of that network around it? And really that's it. It's that kind of forensic of kind of just finding a starting point and then kind of spreading out from there to start to look at that network and, and where it kind of ends up. And often it is just that. It's sniffing around, following those little links to figure out if there's other bigger parts of that network that, that you might be able to discover. Um, so just one example, we, we, um, Tim was looking at the US presidential elections a few years, years ago and discovered these massive 
coordinated um, networks of, of people promoting very much pro-Trump discourse at the time. And um, we found for years, Twitter didn't ban these. It was, the mm. evidence was clear that they were very much artificially boosting. And this is often it's semi-automated. So you might have an, a, a human behind the account, but they're using automation software to assist in that, that boosting of content. Um, because look, if there's, once you get a certain critical mass of content on platforms like Twitter, it kind of goes up in terms of its visibility on the platform and drives that, you know, further engagement. So that kind of, you know, when we talk about going viral, that's, that's that process. They're trying to break into that to get those messages up there trending in the, at the top. And, um, yeah, there was a huge number of accounts that stayed live on the platform for years beyond that 2016 debate. And, um, you know, when we go back and check on those, many are still active today. Um, but, you know, you can see from the evidence we have, we're, we're very implicated in, in, in some, you know, very, very bad kind of information coordination activity. Daniel, can I ask a question? Where Where is this happening in your view? Because the common example raised in this field is Burma, where um, the military engaged in a pretty concerted campaign that people now argue that Facebook is responsible to some degree for the genocide that occurred there. Um, and I do wonder whether we sort of think of it as a problem that occurs in other places. I mean, there's maybe good reasons for that because, you know, Facebook maybe devotes less um, resources to content moderation in languages other than English or certainly um, languages spoke by, spoken by fewer people. But is this a problem that you see in places like the US or is it is it largely in places that are subject to less content moderation or is it everywhere? Is there any geographic trends? It's everywhere. And I'm glad you bring up the, the um, example of Burma. We're doing a study on that right now. So um, with, with colleagues here in DMRC, Bondi Kay and, and Zin, um, who themselves are, are from Burma and, um, and we've been tracking that largely through Facebook. You're right there on one key point. The language is really interesting. When you take the example of Burma, there are issues there around even just the the kinds of characters that are being used um, to. So there's there's I won't go right into it. We don't have the time today. But there's 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 um, multiple different competing formats for the TypeScript that is being used for people to communicate. Um, but there's huge problems with in there. Um, yeah, misinformation being spread on that platform, uh, but also, you know, the bans and the censorship and such going on um, kind of in real time. So, yeah, it's, it's a problem that exists everywhere. We have domestic disinformation here in Australia. Um, and, you know, we've got this report, which we'll get to around, you know, whether China is perhaps um, involved in, you know, information warfare campaigns in Australia. The evidence we have suggests no, or not as widespread as we might think, um, that we just don't see evidence in where we've been looking for huge kind of state-backed disinformation campaigns in Australia. But certainly there are these little pockets, these little hotspots where you do see some activity. And I worry sometimes that we can study the stuff that we can see publicly. So the public Twitter commentary, the public Facebook pages and groups, what we often don't get access into from an academic perspective due to technical restrictions, sometimes ethics as well prevents us from going there, are the private spaces. So the private chats, message boards and threads where that I fear is sometimes where those information operations are now operating more and more and where you're getting some of that malicious activity, be it around COVID misinfo, war-related um, topics or, or you know, anything else for that matter. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well, because my view is that I think that 
misinformation disinformation is like largely decentralized now because like we think that it's you know we, we see the stuff that's on twitter and facebook to a degree um but a lot of the stuff that we're not seeing is stuff that's being shared in whatsapp groups uh, telegram we can see to a degree um even like train emails are still a thing um stuff like that so how do we are you sort of able to sort of gauge and track where some of this misinformation comes from when it when it comes out on like um one of the platforms we can actually see yeah, so it takes a lot more time to do it, Josh. Um, and sometimes we're limited in the resources we have to do it. But you're absolutely right. And we've done some work to try and track that. So going as far as finding, say, on say a site like 4chan, the emergence of particular mimetic um, communication, and then seeing how that then, where it intrudes into other platforms. So that cross-platform work is really, really important. So one of my colleagues, um, Ariadna Matamoros Fernandez, is looking at a lot of cross-platform work across YouTube and other platforms and seeing where you get that kind of movement. And it's where they move from platform to platform that I sometimes think that's where you can pick it up because it's they're always going to leave those breadcrumbs that from a forensic perspective, you can find. So, you know, that's how we've been finding these large kind of coordinated Facebook um, ecosystems of pages linking to other pages, pages linking out to these kinds of fake news websites and, and stuff that exists outside. It, those URLs um, give us a way to locate where that information is is kind of crossing from platform to platform. But um, it's, yeah, it's really interesting watching how a small community work together to craft messages and then they kind of mature them to a point where they then break them out onto those much more public spaces like Facebook and other. Um, and they're kind of almost using the, the telegrams and discords and, and other platforms to strategize about how they're going to use Facebook and the, the much more public platforms to stage their, their, their kind of recruitments or, or such. We've seen that with some of these anti-COVID um, kind of protests and such. The, the movement from those much more private spaces into those large public to try and get their message out and co-opt, you know, larger groups. Mm. Christian makes the really good point that it's also different languages on different platforms and the the, the need, if you're going to understand this, it it is a, a multilingual exercise. There's also, I think, a language challenge in just naming misinformation, disinformation, malinformation and going one level down. And what I thought was really interesting with the um, China paper, which we're still trying to convince Josh is worth a yarn of the Guardian, is that it, it, it's actually finding that when you go looking for something you think's there, that it's not there, what does that tell you? And and you can explain it in more detail, but basically the assumption I think that's been brewing in Australia is that there is... Um, orchestrated activity by either Chinese military government or individual wolves um, to create um, discord in the Australian community and particularly within China's Australian community. And you guys went looking at some particularly um, flammable issues looking for that sort of orchestration and it just didn't seem to be there so what do we do with that information because it is a bit counter narrative isn't it it is and i, I worry sometimes like whenever we see this kind of xenophobia um you know rhetoric you know rising and it always seems to be near an election where we always see that that dead cat bounce right that that racism seems to, to rear its ugly head in australia um I mean, in my lifetime, that goes back to the Tampa incident and, and, and even, you know, um, others as well. 
and that, you know, at the moment, the, the kind of discourse that's happening around, you know, Chinese-Australian relationships is, is very counterproductive and, and really dangerous, to be honest, as well. Um, so, yeah, we went, we went hunting for this um, to see, uh, is there any evidence we could find, at least in public, on, you know, public Twitter, um, around, um, you know, Chinese, you know, coordinated activity to try and boost particular, say, pro-nationalistic um, framings or, or try and really just antagonize situations with relation to, you know, Chinese Australian discourse. And yeah, found very little. Um, and, you know, you know, it's really hard. And I must say a massive caveat with these studies is we have access to what anyone on this chat can see, right? We only get what is there on Twitter. We don't see the information behind the scenes of the personal, you know, names, phone numbers and all of that, which one would need to really unequivocally try and make a statement around whether these are, you know, foreign or state actors. But um, yeah, we found very little evidence of some kind of coordinated state-backed campaign. And the key events were things like um, there was the incident with a high-ranking uh, member of the Chinese um, state um, posting, uh, you know, kind of inflammatory imagery around the war crimes of Australian and Afghanistan um, war crimes. Um, so there was that image of the, the lamb and the Australian soldier. Um, and look, our, our ministers took the bait, right? They engaged in that, inflamed that situation. Um, but looking around those key incidents, that's exactly where you would expect to find those, if there was going to be an influence operation, they're the places you would go to try and use that as a catalyst to try and then build in and create these, these kinds of counterproductive discourses inflaming that situation. And frankly, we just didn't see much of that at all. We saw people who were certainly kind of very much pro-China, but there was nothing to suggest through the patterns of their activities that that was part of some, you know, that there was 500 of them sitting in a room, all at keyboards, kind of smashing out those messages um, in, in unison. It, it's just not at that scale from the evidence we saw. And can I ask then about that? There was just a couple of comments in the chat there um, about where some of this stuff starts. You know, obviously states are a key potential source because of their sheer power and resources. But do you think that this is a problem that may have also touched or being or is being perpetrated by things like private corporations like I do wonder about this something like climate change and how that debate is framed you could see how there are vested interests from the fossil fuel sector that may wish to use these kinds of tactics I mean it's difficult to know where the tactic stops and where you know the politics of everyday life begins because this is a, a perennial issue that's marked lots of public policy making but I wondered if you could offer some thoughts about where some of these disinfo campaigns start whether it is just states or others oh look yeah there's, there's huge research into this I mean tobacco is a big one right and and they've been known to do this they, they basically invented astroturfing and the playbook that, that a lot of these newer digital astroturfing campaigns are, are kind of adopting. Um, there were cases recently in a lot of the um, a lot of the anti-unionization uh, stuff that's happening in the states. Um, you're finding a lot of that um, activity, this this information happening from the companies like your Walmarts or Amazons or others, where they're trying to pay like pass themselves off as, as genuine workers and saying, oh, you know, we're really concerned about unionization. It's going to erode our, you know, it, it's going to take money and not give us anything back and, and trying to craft these messages and see if they can take hold. Um, so there's absolutely evidence of this and climate change, of course, is going to be there as well. There's huge money, right, in maintaining the status quo. 
And often, and I use this example in talking about the recent um, Ukraine conflict as well, often these disinformation campaigns don't even need to try to win over a side of an argument. Mm. It's often enough just to confuse and to stall any kind of progress that like when you look at what's happening with Ukraine, it's I think a lot of the, the Russian propaganda and disinformation is possibly not even trying to win support for Russia. Mm. It's just trying to delay a coordinated response from the West, right, to come in and actually interrupt what's happening there. It's almost Putin trying to buy time, perhaps. Um, and that's a lot of misinformation wrapped up there. It's often not to yeah, convince you. It's often just to confuse a situation and make it appear as though there's not, say, a greater consensus for action and activity. So be that on climate change, be that on the case of like unionization of, of workers, anything like that. If they can maintain the status quo position, then that's almost a win for them at that point. Hey, Josh, it strikes me that one of the, the challenges here is to move beyond thinking about the online disinformation as using these secret magic tools and then but looking at it as a system that's ripe for exploitation, but also ripe for understanding. Um, one of my reflections, I got a few calls about the Australia call to shut down. Russia today on social media and it struck me that in the middle of a black swan event is probably not the right time to be thinking through the way your system's going to operate it would be much mm. better to do that when you're talking about whether or not there should be an enforceable code of disinformation leveled on the platforms outside the context of war but interested in your thoughts on this yeah I think um you know there's this reflexivity I guess when when some when a big event like this happens for governments to act and um, we saw it after the Christchurch um, massacre where um, the the government quickly implemented uh, laws that you know require companies to take these sites down or block access to them and that uh, that legislation had had a whole bunch of issues with it but, but it was passed very quickly and they had to go back and fix it up later so they they really sort of need to sort of step back a, a bit when they're when they're doing this sort of thing and think it through before they um they they do that kind of thing it, it's um it's going to be interesting to watch what happens in the context of the upcoming federal election because um i don't think that you know i i <laughs> my, my opinion is that like australia thinks china thinks that Australia matters much more than we actually do. Um, so that's why, uh, you know, you've got politicians who are like, well, you know, China is going to be targeting us, et cetera, et cetera. There may be a little bit of that. And there's obviously money involved in, in some of these things, but I don't think that there'd be a concerted, you know, disinformation campaign um, from China. I'd be very surprised if there was. Um, I think it's probably going to come from more local sources. I think um, it was interesting. I was watching, um, there was a the parliamentary uh, committee hearing on Wednesday for the um, uh, social media and online safety um, inquiry that they're doing at the moment. They had um, Facebook up again or Meta up again and uh, Labor MP Tim Watts, who's the shadow assistant communications minister, was pushing Meta quite hard about how quickly they're going to respond in the, in the, um, in the context of a four-week election campaign to fact-checking or removing misinformation, disinformation in their platform. So they're quite concerned about a repeat of the 2019 election where was where was that um, death tax stuff that kept getting circulated. And they're worried that, you know, well, Facebook in, the, in that instance, so they would remove um, posts that were um, not from politicians about it. Uh, I will fact check it, sorry. And, but they kind of left the politicians ones up and people expressing opinion about whether Labor might introduce a death tax up. And they said that that's sort of that, their line. Um, so they couldn't 
they wouldn't really commit to how quickly they're going to turn it around, but I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to how they, how quickly they respond to these sorts of things, because we are going to see a lot of that. And particularly, you know, you've got um, United Australia Party is going to be funding a lot of advertising um, in the lead up to the election. And, and um, the party says that the stuff that they're putting is not misinformation, disinformation, but um, I think there's going to be there, some of their um, ads will probably come under a lot of scrutiny as well. I think Craig Kelly was also in that in that committee hearing and he was trying to get um, Facebook to commit to not um, fact-checking politicians during the election campaign, political <laughs> candidates, which was um, which was very interesting. Um, he he made the comparison. He essentially said it was was it amounted to foreign interference if, if um, Facebook intervened and fact checked one of his posts. So, yeah, I think it, it's going to be an interesting time over the, over the election campaign. I think. Can I just jump in? Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, Liz. Um, I was just going to jump in off the back of you, Josh. So, I, I think there is a point here, though, that how much we have referred to private companies to essentially moderate and and regulate our online public sphere. It's um, you know. It, yeah, it shows a deficiency in at least having the conversation around how do we deal with this? You know, do we need truth in political advertising laws? You know, these kinds of things um, that, you know, I, I see a lot of pressure and I'm kind of one of them because let's be frank, the platforms provide very little transparency and, and we kind of need that to keep them honest and, and know what's going on. But that's very different to have a conversation around observability and transparency and to jump to conversations around regulation. And I worry, like you you bring up the, the current kind of debate around the online safety bills and, and these kinds of things. I think we're jumping the regulatory gun a little bit here before we've even been able to actually peer under the hood and see what is there. Um, and what it's giving the platforms at the moment, I think, is it, it's giving them fuel for their fires to kind of push back and say, no, actually, here is the data here. And we saw that with the news media bargaining code that all this, you know, hot air was out there around how much you know revenue they're stealing from from journalism and news and they're able to turn around and say well no actually the data's here it's, it's not that significant in terms of our traffic and so we're kind of letting them have too many of those aces up their sleeve if we don't force the transparency and observability aspect a little bit harder and i think the first step in regulation should be around regulating in that kind of form of transparency and observability and then we can get the evidence together of figuring out what do we do now given what we know is happening on those platforms it's yeah, this, oh. i was just gonna say that um this is sort of a question that i want to ask you in the last minutes of this um daniel because i was sort of wondering to what extent do we think platforms do know this is a problem and do know what to do about it the best information that i know of to date about how platforms tackle the problem of inauthentic content or activity or disinformation you know it's called different things but essentially particularly during election times is that memo that was written by a, um, a data analyst in facebook who left who was very worried about this and said i'm completely under resourced i'm having to make decisions probably quite a young person living in san francisco making decisions about what content to take down what to leave up in places other parts of the world about which i don't have a huge amount of information and to my mind i wonder if we look under the hood and there's actually just not much there like i think facebook probably feels quite uh comfortable in some ways in relative terms doing this kind of work in somewhere like the united states or in somewhere like australia but i wonder whether they're really doing this in any meaningful way in lots of other parts of the world where they don't have a cultural context where they don't um, have the capacity whether it's linguistic or resources to identify these kinds of networks like your research I think just shows how challenging it is 
I mean, they've got all the tools at their disposal. So I don't want to let them off the hook there because I think absolutely this is their job. You know, they this is why they're so profitable because they essentially allow the social costs of their platform to be offloaded onto all of us and they privatise the gains. But I do wonder as well whether, I mean, I appreciate, you know, transparency is the first step, but I don't even think they're the qualified people to be doing this work. You know, this is a social political activity and we need buy-in from people to do it, you know, uh, on, a, on, a, on a quite philosophical level. But I appreciate that um, the first step is transparency. But I did wonder, Daniel, whether you thought that there maybe they just aren't doing much of this or anywhere near the amount that they maybe did, for example, at the last presidential election in the US because they knew they were going to be scrutinised in that context. And yeah. Just double loading the question up because we are running down. Mm-hmm. And I want to get this out. But just to Lizzie's point, what are you guys doing to try to build some scrutiny into the Australian election? Because if we get to the end of the hour without talking about that, then I really haven't done my job at all. Yeah, no, that's fine. I was going to wrap it in, um, but no, thank you for the prompt, Peter. So what we are doing to try and build a bit of transparency and kind of put the pressure back, because I completely agree with you, Lizzie, that we, we need to know what's going on. And I'll get to this point around, I agree with you. I think they're very under-equipped in terms of dealing with this themselves. So what we've built is this thing called the Australian Ad Observatory. Um, it's, it's under our large centre of excellence. I'm going to put a link in the chat for people. Um, and what I would love for everyone today, if you can, is follow that link and um, if you're comfortable, download the plugin. What this is going to do for us in the upcoming election is it's a small plugin. And when you open up Facebook, if you're a Facebook user, it when you're scrolling through on Facebook on your computer, it detects any advertising that you encounter within your feed. It will then send that advertising and only that advertising. We don't look at any other content. It's it's incredibly safe in terms of only grabbing the sponsored content. So we explain it on the page, sponsored, it has to be labeled as sponsored content. So we snip that out and we pull that up. What this gives us is the eyes on, on your end, right? Because Facebook has this transparency library that they like to you know, bring up at any inquiry. They say, yes, we're doing all this great stuff around transparency. But the fact that Lizzie's point is that look, we've got to trust them that they're labelling everything and that there's no malicious actors there, which of course there are, right? And there's that great um, example from last week with, I think it was Reset, who bought some ads, political ads, didn't put the political issues category in the ad and we're still able to get them authorised by Facebook. So we know that Facebook systems are fallible. So what this plugin then does is it means that we can collect those ads that you see in a massive database and start to actually sift through that and figure out, are there political advertising in there that is not being correctly accounted for by Facebook through their own transparency initiative? And then that gives us a way to kind of meet in the middle and say, look, while that's all great to kind of have all this, you know, nice PR exercise around transparency, on the ground, we know it's a very different story and you're, you're obviously not doing enough to be able to pick up this material. But to get to more substantive your point, Lizzie, that I agree that these are gnarly problems. And the problem with the platforms has been they're very much the closed shop. And I think almost a bit of hubris there, that they see themselves as, as, as knowing more and being better at this than anybody else and not really letting the academic community in who've got significant, um, I think, significantly more advanced understandings of some of these issues and could really help them if they would allow themselves to be so helped. Part of it, I think, is a bit of political fear, right? They fear that when an academic looks at this or we, we kind of examine the problem, that that presents it as, oh, there's a problem here. And it's kind of like they, they, they want to make it seem as though they have all the answers, 
their systems are infallible. Of course, there's nothing going wrong there. And they've got all these smart engineers working at it and they're the best place to do anything about it. And it's almost like they're refusing to you know, admit that there is a problem there. And in fact, they do need others to help them out and to, to help them with these problems. And look, the problems are hard. Like one example of this, right, I'll just leave people with, is think about mimetic communication. So images and text. A simple text piece of text can completely change the context of an image. So you can take an image by itself and it appears pretty benign. So say you take a graveyard, right? So a picture of a graveyard by itself, okay, it's a graveyard, fine. Depending on the text you put with that, can completely change its meaning. So, you know, put text. And this is an example that Facebook themselves use is all of your people belong here, right? Take that text with that image and that's quite a sinister message, right? That's hate speech. That's a really difficult thing for a computer system to identify and classify in that way. And that's the problem they're dealing with is that human communication is, is complex, right? Is, is multi-layered. And those platforms, their moderation, they never admit it, but I mean, or make this public too much is there's a huge amount of human labor involved in that. They make it seem as though there's these fancy algorithms going through and detecting and siphoning through and picking out the content. But in fact, there's armies of humans that are there assessing these according to set guidelines. And so, you know, they're still relying on human judgment. And while they're doing that, these systems just can't scale. And so it means that that material, that objectionable material is sitting there and, and propagating on the platform um, unchecked. So look, yeah, I agree. I think there needs to be a lot more done, but I'm firm in, in my view that I think a key to it is them actually opening themselves up to assistance, to a bit more of that transparency. Um, because look, ultimately the tools can do amazing things, right? They can allow us to connect and, and share information, but um, yeah, they've got significant problems, I think, mm. that we need to help them with. Well, you know, I, I think you've nailed it. Once they open the kimono, you, you realise that it's not viable and those systems can't scale and be safe. And um, mm. that's the problem. Hey, um, just winding down, Lizzie, anything in the digital rights um, watch calendar for the next couple of weeks that um, people need to be aware of? Well, uh, it just did happen yesterday, so I'm going to take liberty there. But uh, we just released our State of Digital Rights report, and I would encourage everyone to have a look and read it. It's available on our website. I'll quickly find the link while I'm here. But it's, yeah, just reflections on the last 12 months of key topics, but they're really accessible, interesting essays from a diverse range of thinkers and activists and workers and the tech industry. So I would encourage everyone to take a look if they're interested. Terrific. What are you looking at for over the next fortnight, Josh? I yeah, that's that's a good question. I think I've been I've been diving into a bit of the um the UAP candidates because a lot of them had quite an interesting um digital trail, but I, like a lot of them have been quite um private. I, I, might, I might just end on um uh, sort of circling back mm. to the, the social mm. media companies. Like mm. um, I think there's probably two fold problem here that it will play out in the next couple of months. Is the first is that the tech companies always say that they want to be regulated, but then um, when legislation is actually presented to them, they're very much anti. Uh, anything being done um, so that that's the other thing from the government point of view um, I think there's a real reluctance to actually do anything here um, you know we've got this voluntary misinformation disinformation code but the government doesn't really seem keen to want to do anything more with it I think because that would play uh, I mean it would it would um, tie their hand behind their back in a way because they they, they would find this code also being applied to themselves, um, mm. which I think they don't want. And you know, it's it's a similar like someone in the in their messages was was saying that the government hasn't done anything about the spam text messages. They could change the Privacy Act tomorrow to prevent um, 
uh, you know, political parties from being exempt from that, and that would stop it completely, but they don't want to because it would apply to them as well. Yeah. I think that truth in political advertising is a debate that won't be resolved before this election, but I'm sure with Dan's help and your help, Josh, and probably our work on the sideline, Lizzie will be making the case for something a little bit more robust next time we go around. Um, guys, thanks for your time today. Um, great having you, Josh. Dan, terrific. Thanks for being part of the discussion. We'll see you in a fortnight, Lizzie, and thanks, everyone, for joining Burning Platforms. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au where you can also subscribe to our Tech Check summary of the latest news and ideas. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.